Special shout out to one of our favorite media companies at Crooked Media. While hosting brilliant podcasts like Positive America, Hysteria, This Land, Love It or Leave It, and more, they even fund the things that matter. Chip in to the No Off Years Fund to support the work of organizers in key states who are making sure all eligible voters are registered early so they don't face any problems in making their voices heard next year. Your donation will be supporting frontline efforts in Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Wisconsin, places where new voters will help make the difference in our ability to win in 2022 and beyond. I myself have donated to the cause and look forward to seeing the outreach we can create. Check out votesaveamerica.com. That's votesaveamerica.com to find out more. Welcome back to a new episode of Capital C's. I'm Charles Greenley. And I'm Nathan Crunkleton. Let's get right into the hill. The Pfizer vaccine is not authorized for ages 5 to 11. In the FDA's announcement, the agency noted that the vaccine, given to 5 to 11-year-olds as two shots, each one-third the size of each adult shot, provoked an immune response comparable to that seen in young adults. FDA added that no serious side effects have been observed in Pfizer and BioNTech's ongoing clinical trial in younger children. FDA said Friday that about 8,300 children between 5 to 11 years old have been hospitalized with COVID-19, and as of October 17th, 146 deaths from COVID-19 have been reported in that age group. Include the fact that CDC has now said it is good to go, and all of our listeners with young siblings and kids of their own can now feel a little bit bitter about their young ones' safety. Greta Thunberg, known as the Swedish heavy-tempered climate activist, is making headlines after a crisis of her uh, of her using some of not-so-family-friendly not so strong language at a demonstration. The 18-year-old has vowed to adopt a, quote, net-zero approach to cursing after singing out, you can shove your climate crisis up your arse. In the COP26 summit in Scotland, Thunberg is no, uh, uh, known for her infamous speech conveying the world leadership approach to discussing climate, uh, as being blah 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 to essential world leaders. Moving forward, Thunberg promises uh, to compensate her fun language by saying something nice. A new article from CNN Business stated that 2% of Elon Musk's wealth could solve world hunger, says director of UN Food Scarcity Organization. After a fact check from a verified account, the estimated 2% wealth of Musk comes to be about $6 billion. In true Elon fashion, he quickly replied to the tweet saying, If WFP can describe on this Twitter thread exactly how $6 billion will solve world hunger, I will sell Tesla stock right now and do it. Elon might not be the most sincere person in the world, but he sure does make some interesting points. Elon Musk received the reply from the WFP and has since asked the chief to show the proposed spending. Perhaps Musk is going to be a little generous in the near future in regards to world hunger. And while election results are still pouring in from around the country, one thing that's come out of surprise is out of Minneapolis. A city ballot measure to overhaul policing failed, ending the push for the city council to have oversight on a new Department of Public Safety. The ballot measure comes after the backlash of police abuse following the murder of George Floyd. Uh, as if the election results from around the country weren't telling of, of the direction the country is heading in, the failure of this ballot measure shows a direct backlash from, from the progress the city had made over the past summer as Democrats vowed for police reform uh, and we, uh, uh, and in the very city in which George Floyd was brutally murdered. And to be on topic with the recent uh, results of the election from um, November the 2nd, 
unfortunately, we need to talk about what went down uh, between Terry McAuliffe and Glenn Youngkin. A fight the entirety of Democrats were keen on pushing over the finish line to give a light of hope for the direction of the nation. Instead, we could see a minor but crucial step towards what may be our future midterm election results in 2022. McAuliffe, with 99% of votes in, finished nearly 2.2 points below Youngkin, who were proceeded to take the governor's seat. Not only did Democrats see the governor's seat being lost, but also Lieutenant Governor and Attorney General. All Republican victories and with all winning by at least a full point. Nathan, what were your initial reactions seeing the results come in from this race? Yeah, you know, Charles, um, I had predicted uh, Terry to win by a three points uh, moving forward. Uh, Virginia has been something in a blue state relatively. And so it was um, quite a surprise to see Yunkin pull it out, um, especially in the fashion that he did. Um, we're, we're starting to see statistics on uh, voter demographics. And I mean, the simple way to put it is Yunkin, he killed it, man. Uh, it, it's it's a shock, but it, that's that's politics. So naturally, a good question to ask would be, why did Democrats lose? There are several possible answers, like Virginia historically elects the opposite party who is, who is in the White House during their gubernatorial elections. Maybe McAuliffe spent too much time trying to paint Youngkin as Trump-esque. Maybe the Democratic Party simply lost all of their sway to independent voters from the last presidential election. Maybe Democrats didn't fight as hard in the rural counties than they needed to. The list goes on and on and on. I mean, are these good reasons? Are there better reasons? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, looking back at the election, it's easy to say that we lost because of this or because of that. Um, you know, after after the votes are counted, everybody suddenly has 2020 vision. And I, I think a lot of it has to go back to the lack of clear messaging of what Democrats stand for. Uh, I think we have struggled to get a lot through Congress. Uh, Biden had a plan for the uh, for the U.S., and it's been hard to implement that plan so far. And so we're not really clear what Democrats have done within this first year of the new administration. Yeah, I think that's fair. And it was, you know, specifically kind of hard um, seeing uh, McAuliffe trying to run off what he's done compared to what the Democratic Party has done. Um, just because, uh, and you know, in Virginia that they don't let an incumbent run. So they, they don't have two back-to-back you know, holes in the seat. Um, so McAuliffe was originally in there in 2013 um, and then was replaced by Northam in 2017. So having to come from 2013 uh, for his four years and to 2021 and trying to explain what he's done, you know, seven years ago is a lot harder um, when you haven't had much to say about Democratic Party in general since the, for the last previous four years, uh, you've had Donald Trump in the presidential uh, seat. So, I mean, it, it seems to be a little bit more difficult uh, for McAuliffe to have, you know, a somewhat solid party kind of uh, deal to kind of ride behind. Um, so I think he tried to attack Yunkin on the only side he could, which is what people had in their minds um, with Trump. I mean, do you think that was the right move? Uh, I think it was a terrible move because Yunkin did a j- great job throughout the campaign of painting himself to not be the Trump candidate. Uh, Yunkin was able to turn his messaging into things that Trump people, uh, Trump supporters are passionate about. So Yunk, with, without portraying himself as the miniature tall Trump, um, he was able to put off the messages about education and CRT 
in in schools. He was able to talk about all the issues that these Republican base uh, is passionate about and still be able to stray away from Trump. And so the message that Terry was portraying about him being the next Trump, uh, it just didn't hit home. And it, it wasn't able to solidify like the Democrats thought that, thought that it would. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've listened uh, to Positive America like we have talked about before in one of their previous episodes, really recent actually. Uh, they both had uh, actual McAuliffe on to talk about the race in, in general. Um, and to me, he did sound kind of out of touch. Um, his his answers were there, but they were kind of leaning in a way of saying that Youngkin's bad, not that he was necessarily good, um, which seemed to be the overall uh, thought process of this entire race. But at the same time, they also played some of their ads that uh, locally you would have seen, not so much nationally. Uh, but a lot of it was Youngkin doing exactly what you said. Uh, you know, mentioning CRT, but not mentioning CRT. He said uh, bringing in education was an important thing for him um, and making sure that uh, parents have a, a voice in what their kids are taught, which, you know, indirectly could kind of bring in some of the things that you would see with CRT or could see uh, some of the things that you've seen with the books recently, which is crazy to me, but it's there nonetheless. Um, while you see McAuliffe's ads, uh, were more or less focused on Youngkin, uh, you know, shaking hands with Donald Trump in a kind of shorter fashion. Yeah, and let's not get it wrong. McAuliffe was a, a well-respected governor in his term. Uh, and at the end of the day, he thought that his campaign would win based on what he's done in the past. And that all he had to do was beat Youngkin based on name alone. Uh, and it, it showed that he didn't do that. His message did not resonate with the voters. And he did not put forth the policy proposals that he wanted to take in the governor's mansion or even push uh, the three the three chambers that we control in Washington right now. And he just missed the mark completely. Um, and, and that's why we see a red Virginia now. So I looked through the election results for this position from 2017 and studied it compared to the one yesterday. And there are some things that are pretty interesting. Like in this year's election, McAuliffe led in 24 counties and independent cities, while Northam, the Democratic candidate in 2017, led in 33. Youngkin won with a small but substantial 2 plus points, while Northam in 2017 won by nearly 9. In 2017, there were a total of almost 2.6 million votes, while this year there were 3.3 million votes. Do you think there's a simple way to explain these number inconsistencies and their sway on the results? Yeah, uh, I, I think... The point of the matter is that Democrats cannot use the excuse that high turnout is good for Democrats anymore. Uh, let's keep in mind that Donald Trump gained more votes than any president in the history of the United States. More people are voting than ever before. And it's not correlated anymore with a Democratic victory. Of course, Joe Biden clearly beat Donald Trump without any uh, collusion or stealing the election, as Trump likes to say. By the end of the day, we are seeing an increase in rural and suburban voters uh, in massive, massive numbers that are leading to these uh, Republican victories. Yeah, and I, th I think it's been brought up a couple of times just by uh, the, the scope of government, and especially in the DNC, that those rural voters used to be people that had um, somewhat liberal ideas on mine. 
um, not so much uh, as in wanting to be Democrat, just in the things that they wanted to be see, like healthcare um, and some laws that were passed that would help their lives out. Um, and usually the policies um, are kind of said by Democrats. Um, and now it's more or less uh, they're fighting the fight that's saying that we're Democrats and we're not them. Um, and you think that's having some kind of pushback on not actually getting their policies out there as much as they should? Oh, it's 100% having an impact. And I, I think one thing that kind of is prohibiting this is we look at what Biden has done over this past year and not much is getting done because of mansion and cinema. And so Democrats don't have a lot to show for what they stand for right now. We're sitting here and we're waiting for BBB to pass. We're waiting for infrastructure to pass. We're saying that we're running all these platforms, but we still haven't got it done. Voting Rights Act has gone out the window. We haven't even spoken about it. Uh, there are simple things that Democrats ran on in 2020 that the independent voter is starting to see they're not getting done. They're looking at the trending of the economy right now. Even though the economy is at an all-time high, gas prices are still at a high. And so this is the things that resonate with voters. And this is why they're listening to Yunkin. And eventually they voted for Yunkin. As Yunkin is providing these policies that are actually going to implement change in their daily life. That Democrats aren't, they're saying they're going to do, but they haven't showed it yet. Yeah, we'll talk about numbers and results. It's hard to not look back on the polling numbers. Sure, polling has become consistently less and less reliable, but many of this racist polls had Yunkin with a slight edge or being a toss-up. I think a lot of people, including myself, have started to doubt polling so much that I found myself believing they weren't correct at all and were missing the more liberal voice, uh, but these seem to be almost annoyingly accurate. Uh, I mean, are polls still good statistical evidence? Should we start paying more attention to them again? Yeah, you know, as someone who worked for a uh, public opinion and research facility, I have a special place in my heart for polls. I understand the uh, methodology that goes into it. And so I, I've never been a part of this war against polling. Uh, and when, when Republicans sit back and say, oh, the polls were wrong, the polls were wrong. No, they weren't necessarily. Nine times out of 10, they're pretty accurate, give or take two or three points. And Virginia was spot on. I think Virginia is a prime example that polling is a strong indication, uh, especially at a time where people are being very vocal about what they believe in and what they stand for. That makes that shift of that, par uh, that paradigm of people saying one thing but voting another. That's starting to be eliminated in our society a little bit. And so polling is only going to get more and more accurate here on out. So going away from Virginia and focusing on the larger picture doesn't get much better. In the New Jersey gubernatorial race, Democratic incumbent Phil Murphy, who was heavily favored for election, is now in a very heated battle with, as of 8 a.m. Eastern Time, he was barely leading his Republican challenger, Jack Ciotarelli, by a meager 700ths of a point. It's fairly obvious to say here, but uh, Democrats should be worried for the upcoming midterms elections. Is there a light at the end of the tunnel? I think there is light at the end of the tunnel. I think it just deeply depends on what gets done before these midterms come up. We're so close to passing BBB. We're so we're ready. We're ready to pass infrastructure. We need to go ahead and get voting rights passed. Keep our promises that we have made as Democrats uh, in office, and we will start to see these policies start to reflect the voters. Uh, and honestly, that is our only shot in 22. Is if we can start making this agenda and actually completing it. 
Yeah, and I mean, I just, I just wanted to say, you know, just the other side of these gubernatorial elections as well. Uh, Virginia having no incumbents uh, is, is tough in general. Um, and the ability for Virginia to actually hold the same party as the White House um, has basically been impossible in the modern era, um, other than 2013 when McAuliffe won. So it's not incredibly uh, uh, awful that they, they lost the seat. It does happen quite, quite often, uh, but definitely unfortunate. And while on the other side, New Jersey hasn't had a Democratic governor reelected since 1977. So again, not very common, even though uh, uh, Murphy was kind of favored by, I think, around eight points by most polls. Um, it's not such a certain thing when it comes to uh, things of government nature and people's social uh, statuses. So, yeah, it's, it's it's a weird indication with how Democrats did in 2020 and we're moving forward to 2021. We saw both of these seats to be relatively safe slash leaning Democrat. Um, but I mean, you got to give credit to Cittarelli and Youngkin. They both have ran terrific campaigns that resonated with both the Trump base, the Republican base and the independent base. You got to give them props. Yeah, I think uh, the the Republican um, Party in general did pretty well on their ads um, and marketing for this election cycle, and I think they will continue on that path into twenty twenty two. So, like you said, if we don't keep the policies um, actually forthcoming um, with the BBB and the bipartisan and the Voting Act and and more that will uh, hopefully happen in the next year. Uh, we'll see nothing but a, a bunch of uh, red inside 2022. But enough of all the gloom. When we come back, we'll have a game for you and talk about parties. Political parties, that is. You know, I talked a lot about platforms and media and their polarizing views on different things last episode, but one of the biggest to ever do it is certainly Facebook. I mean, Meta. Anyways, on October 28th, Mark Zuckerberg announced that they would now be known as Meta. My initial reaction was, that's what marketing came up with? <laughs> what about you? Yeah, um, I, I don't think there's anything very meta about Facebook. Um, you know, they've been in crisis mode to crisis mode for the last year and a half. Um, and, and it's interesting. I think that's the word I want to use for that. Yeah, and also seriousness, it feels like a cop-out. I mean, Facebook has been under the microscope and consistently scrutinized for its inability to keep their family of apps safe, whether that be from self-esteem issues of the young or the misinformation fed through groups targeting certain people. I mean, social media in general is almost solely Facebook. Let's not forget they own both Instagram and WhatsApp as well. Do you think there was a deeper reason the name change, or am I being conspiracy theorist? I mean, let's be honest, Charles. When when things go wrong, we're just going to change the name of our podcast, right? So, I mean... <laughs> Sounds like I, a good I point, mean, Danny. If, if that's what works, capital C's was bad, but we're not capital C's, right? We're meta. So, it, uh, I mean, that's all it is. I, I think it's just an attempt from Zuckerberg to, you know, just move on. Uh, I think so, too. But, I mean, despite the awfulness behind the name that is Facebook, the keynote was pretty cool. Facebook... I mean, Meta owns one of the biggest virtual reality companies named Oculus, 
With this, they want to make a whole new virtual world, looking at you, Black Mirror, and Ready Player One. But I digress. Are you excited about the possibilities of the future, or are you more slightly worried? Listen, I'm, I am I like VR. I think it's a fun thing. Um, but at the same time, we, we have to worry about the size of Facebook in itself, right? Like, they're having all these major issues, and they're only getting bigger. Um, and it's not very meta, per se. Yeah, I think Zuckerberg has uh, put his hands in a little bit of too many of the pots that have happened to uh, come along in the technology field uh, since 2004. Um, I've looked through just their acquisitions and it's ridiculous uh, the amount of things that they have bought um, and kind of taken away from some of these independent companies. Um, and a lot of these don't have money to disclose. Um, so it's really, really interesting to see that something like Facebook has this huge hold on something that most people just don't really understand yet. Hey, pretty soon Facebook is going to own uh, capital C's, so that's all good. I mean, if, if they pay for it, I'm not too mad about it. <laughs> and we're back. Um, and like I promised, we have a game for you all. Uh, this week about political parties. I call it party planners. Nathan, I have a list of both made up and real political parties in front of me. The idea is, in a nation that only talks about Republican or Democrat, do we know who else exists? Once again, probably not. <laughs> once again, listeners, feel free to play at home. Nathan, are you ready? Let's do it. So the first one is the Alliance Party. The Alliance Party. Um, interesting. I'm gonna have to say no on this one. The Alliance Party is an actual political party in the United States. Oh, interesting. The next party is the Constitution Party. Obvious one. The Constitution Party does exist. That's correct. Uh, next, the Reform Party. Uh, we're gonna go with it also exists. That also does exist. How about the Green Party? I mean, we love Jill Stein, right? <laughs> I don't know about love, but yep, it definitely does exist. Um, and how about the Libertarian Party? Libertarian Party, easy one, right? Um, yeah, they're definitely. there. They're just there, but they're there. <laughs> definitely also does exist. Um, how about Natural Law Party? Um... With everything that's been happening over the past year, it wouldn't surprise me. We're going to say yes. It also does exist. Uh, what about the Party for Socialism and Liberation? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? We'll say it exists. It also does exist. What about the Working Class Party? I'm seeing the trend here. I'm going to say it does exist. It, it does exist. And, you know, just to finish it out, what about the Working Family Party? So, fun fact about the Working Family Party. It does exist. It does. All of these parties are currently recognized in state legislatures. Some much less than others, but they all exist, and there are plenty more where that comes from. Many well, parties don't put candidates for elections, but they exist in lobbies, councils, and PACs. So, why not brought up, they certainly bring up things themselves. Yeah, while I have it, uh, I just want to issue an apology to the Alliance Party on that one. A <laughs> um, little bit of a trick question on that one, so, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, this is a, a something that I just took a look at, um, and just I I haven't heard of essentially any of these really, um, and it's kind of surprising to me that we have an absurd. I mean, absurd. Like I've I've looked at a list at this point. Um, <laughs> there are an absurd amount of parties that exist in the United States. Um, some going back from like 1940. Some don't even exist anymore uh, since those times. But there's still a lot that are that are actively participating um, in, in lobbies and packs and councils um, and have ears of, of some of the you know elected governors and uh, state legislators that you know of now. Uh, so I mean that brings me to a topic that I want to spend the other majority of our time discussing this episode. In fact, let's let me and your favorite senator start it off. Joe Manchin. Have you ever thought my life would be easier for you if you shifted to being a Republican? And somebody have said recently that, um, you know, people have approached you about doing that. Every day. Every day. So, um, and well, either that or just change. Here's the, I actually Wouldn't life be easier for you to do that? Oh, it would be much easier. My goodness. Are you but thinking is that the purpose of being involved in public service? Are, are you thinking because about it's easy? doing it? No, I've never, I, I never thought from this. I, I'm a, I, what I'm telling you now is who I am. Do you think by having a D or an I or an R is going to change who I am? I don't think the R's be any more happier with me than D's are right now. Okay? I mean, that's about as blunt as I can put it. So I don't know where in the hell I belong. So, loaded question, Nathan. And you can answer as lengthy or abruptly as you wish. But do you believe in the bipartisan government that exists today? So... I do believe in the bipartisan government. Do I think there should be a multi-party system uh, or multi-party representation? Yes. Uh, I, I think that the individual voter uh, has the right. And if there is enough, should be represented uh, on that basis of people believing in what this party stands for. Um, and, and so while I think it will never happen um, just because of how our system works and the winner-take-all system, uh, yeah, for sure. Multiple, uh, multi-party systems are represent representational of what the people believe in and forms a coalition government that the people can believe in. So a brief recap of the United States party system for our listeners. The United States started with a single party of the Federalists. Now this will sound familiar to those that have seen and enjoyed Hamilton, but the faction split relatively quick and the Democratic Republican Party came to exist. So yes, as funny as it is, in the mid-1820s, our two polarizing parties of today were considered one. For the next 30 years, Democratic-Republican became their own party, and after several core virtues and agenda development, we now have what has become today. So from the beginning, a bipartisan system has stuck with us like mold on bad bread. Now Nathan, I asked you this before, but what do you believe is the party that you most resonate with from history and the changing of values? Yeah, so we talked about it a lot, and I, I think today's Democratic Party is probably who I resonate with the most uh, because it's the most progressive that we've ever been. Um, it has the inclusion of LGBTQ, of uh, people of color, of anybody and everybody in our society. Uh, and so it's the most representational and the most progressive when it comes to the equality of all people. Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of follow that same kind of, um, you know, follow that same kind of reasoning. Uh, I'm, I think I resonate with the Democratic Party that was of the fifth party system. So, I mean, you know, that would be coming when Roosevelt took presidency after Great Depression. 
Uh, I think this is kind of the defining moment for Democrats in general, where liberalism was starting to show. Um, and, and I think uh, while we are obviously uh, well past that um, at this point, I, I think uh, maybe uh, we might be just a little bit encroaching on someone else's party at this point, um, where Democrats uh, and progressive and moderates are becoming a little bit too much of a big and span. Yeah, and I think we would be moronic to say that uh, liberalism or conservatism has worked for this country well at different standpoints in, in, in our history. Uh, there have been times where conservatism has been a good thing for this country, and there are times that liberalism is a good thing for this country. And now we're kind of entering into an age where if it's moderate liberalism, if it's the classic progressivism, or if it's the true progressivism uh, nearing true socialism at this point, um, which is not a scary word to say, but that's what many people in this country believe in today. Yeah, I mean, do you think you can accurately state that you are a Democrat through and through, or are there things where you just simply differ? I mean, so when it comes to liberalism, there are things that I differ with on, on the ideas of the Democratic Party. Um, but I would say 90% of what the Democratic Party aligns with is what I also align with. And so here's the thing with that. While I agree with you, uh, there's someone else that also kind of agrees with you. Uh, that would be Andrew Yang. Yes, the same Yang who ran as a Democratic presidential primary candidate in 2020 and Democratic New York mayoral primary candidate in 2021. Needless to say, he lost both contests, and last month, on October 4th, he left the Democratic Party stating that he was an independent, which he then followed the next day by founding the Forward Party. And the Forward Party aims to become substantial enough to reduce the polarization of our current government system. What do you think of the Forward Party and, and the idea of a substantial third party in our current bipartisan system? Yeah, I mean, let's be honest, Charles. Uh, is the Ford Party ever going to win a national election? Probably not. Um, I, and I say probably not as a no. It's just not going to happen. Uh, and what I think Yang is dealing with is he doesn't feel heard. He doesn't feel understood within the Democratic Party, which is okay. No political party is ever going to be perfect. We look at both parties right now. We have the Bernie Sanders of the left, and we have the... Adam Kissingers of the right, who feel that they're not truly being heard in their Democratic Party, uh, not or in their part, respective party, uh, not to even mention Cinema uh, and Mansion, um, and, and so I, I I get where Yang is coming from, but I think if we're ever going to be viable, change has to come within our two major parties first. Yeah, and that's been a lot of the kind of uh, worries on this. Um, but a lot of people are also saying that Yang is just doing this just because he's, he's lost on both the primary presidential candidacy and the primary of, of the mayoral of New York. Um, do you think that this is just a way for Yang to cope? Uh, yeah, very easily I think it could be. Um, I, I mean, let's look at the facts. Uh, even though Hillary Clinton lost in 2016, for example, Bernie Sanders could have easily ran as an independent taken many and many votes away from Hillary's liberal base, and it would have been an even worse defeat uh, for Democrats, uh, and Donald Trump would have won by an even bigger margin. And I think we're seeing a similar thing with Yang. Yang has a distaste, and he feels unheard with the party, 
And what it's going to end up doing is hurting Democrats in the long run. Yeah, and that has been the most specific worry from the left, is that Yang, whose policies have definitely tended to be more liberal in nature, will only be able to recruit like-minded candidates, therefore reducing only the Democratic Party and splitting the vote of liberal voices everywhere. Yank himself has countered that he has talked to many political persons on both sides in hopes of coercing them to become a part of the forward party. Where do you stand on this? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's going to happen. Just being completely honest. I, I think when Donald Trump re-arises in 2024, uh, Yang will step to the side and realize that it takes a coalition effort. It takes one voice to be heard in order for us to defeat uh, the other political party of the time. Let's say this works. Theoretically, getting senators like Cinema, Manchin, Collins, and Markowski as candidates and electors of the quote-unquote forward party. Not these specific senators, but just those with a somewhat independent mindset that has somewhat coalesced in recent years. Can this possibly help the inadequacy of legislation nationally? Uh, if anything, I think it's just going to hurt even more, to be completely honest with you. Um, because we're going to come down to very decisive issues, and it's going to be left in the hands of, hypothetically, these senators that you mentioned. Um, and where we're sitting at a, we're currently sitting at a uh, majority party with the Democrats. Uh, and now we're going to be talking about a 46 to 46 Senate or 48 to 48 Senate. And it's going to be even harder for either party to get these things through Congress. But do you think that's just the same thing that we're facing now? Uh, if if you really looked at it, uh, even with those four being considered a, a forward party, um, that I think you're you're looking at almost exactly where we are now. Does I mean, do you not think that it doesn't help or it doesn't? But you think it's just the same. I think it's both similar and different in its own ways. Um, there's still going to be the unpredictability issue of the forward party and what the forward party is actually going to stand for. Uh, Yang himself has not been very clear in his own platforms. Uh, and I mean, just look at cinema uh, and what she's done in the past two months. And I mean, it's not very clear what she stands for either. Um, and, and so if there's an unclear vision from the party that would create a majority uh, when it comes to passing these bills through Congress, uh, it's a scary thought. Um, and I, I think that's really the only way to put it. There's not really much of a, a change that would happen um, when it comes down to the voting call. But at the end of the day, it would drastically shift the dynamic in the way that Democrats and Republicans conduct business in Congress. Yeah, it would definitely shift. But I, I think I might have to disagree with you on this. It's not that um, I believe that it will uh, fundamentally hurt legislature. I think it would actually help because as of right now, Senator Manchin obviously being a pain, but Constant Markowski or, you know, whoever would hypothetically be in those positions uh, could not have to be blackballed by their respective parties and, you know, hoping to come up with something on the other side as well. Um, I think the polarization that Yang has talked about is true, um, and he said in his most recent book um, that it's, it's more of a tribalism thing, where if you think of it like the patriarchal nature that um, a lot of people had in like the 1800s, you would think that 
hey, I was kind of born and bred in this, so I should stay this. Um, and if I do something that's not okay with this, then I will no longer be this. And I feel like there's a lot of people in government that are in a so-and-so party um, and feel like they are stuck there because if they leave that so-and-so party, they won't ever get reelected for any other party. Yeah, I think that's definitely understandable. It's a lot easier to be elected when there's a D or an R beside your name. Uh, but at the same time, I think we have to keep in mind that political parties take time, right? It's not going to be something that's instant. Yang isn't going to come out in 2024 and be the third biggest party in the country. Um, it, if Manchin was to switch over to the forward party, Manchin is still going to be seen as a Democrat to most senators. Uh, and honestly, to most people of public opinion as well. Uh, and the same goes for Murkowski, for example. If she was to join this party, people are still going to know her as the Republican who leans to the left a little bit. I mean, if this somehow does become a possibility, then it won't be long before more parties are founded. Is there a parliamentary system beginning in the United States? And could it be successful? So, truthfully speaking, I think that our system and our two major political uh, political parties are the Facebooks of politics. Um, that if, if they really have an issue with with it, they're going to just stomp it out and do whatever it can, they can to, to become part of that. Um, and, and so I don't see a parliamentary system happening anytime soon. But who knows? I might be wrong, and it probably would be a good thing if I am. Yeah, I, I mean, I've looked at Western Europe from high school um, inside those same type of government classes just to, you know, learn how a parliamentary system works. Um, it's, it's convoluted. Uh, it does make, in general, a little bit more sense um, in the fact of voting and, you know, seeing your representation actually go through uh, into the legislature so you know what exactly is happening. Um, but it is really strange seeing, you know, 10 votes for this party, 5 votes for this party, 20 votes for this party, 70 votes for this party. They're the majority. They now have uh, whoever is that monarchical stature um, inside their government. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, I think United States could see a sort of a parliamentary system um, working with their already currently open house system, but it's uh, something that would take a while to do and probably, probably after our lifetimes. Yeah, and coalition governments are a great thing. They're the most representative thing. Um, Germany has one of the most representative governments in the entire world. Um, and their coalition government forces them to have to work together. And one thing that we know is that Americans do not like to work together, especially in politics. Uh, and so if this is ever going to happen, it's going to take radical constitutional change. And as much as... As much as Americans love change when it comes to politics, if Virginia and New Jersey haven't been a sign of that, uh, one thing that they don't like is constitutional change. And so that's just the main reason I have a hard time seeing it happening anytime soon. Yeah, uh, I mean, obviously there's some serious political debate that can arise from someone attempting to create something like the forward party, but that's probably going to be a discussion for the future. Listeners, while that goes through your mind, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we will talk about our hill and valleys for the week and what might be in next week's episode. You've enjoyed listening to our words. Now enjoy reading them.
Go check out our blog and in general website at capitalseedspod.wixsite.com slash website. That's capital as in capital Hill, cspod.wixsite, W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com slash website. And we're back. It is once again time to talk about who in politics belongs on a hill this week and who belongs in timeout. Nathan, who do you have as your hill this week? Yeah, so my hill of the week is John Kerry, uh, you know, former Democratic nominee for president of the United States in 2004. Uh, It didn't quite work out for him, and so he has since kind of changed his efforts towards uh, social causes. And he actually attended the COP26 climate uh, summit. Uh, Kerry, who has been a vocal and longtime voice in the fight against climate change, uh, spoke out in efforts and said that we're probably in the best position we've ever been as we near that 1.5 Celsius uh, limit in the Paris Climate Accords Agreement uh, and took a vital role in the Conference of Parties in Glasgow. And so great job by Kerry for speaking out and staying involved. Yeah, I actually didn't even know that. I've heard some stuff from um, the actual uh, meeting, but I, I didn't know they had some some old ringers inside of the, the, the ring. But I'm picking a Republican, believe it or not. Adam Kinzinger is a representative from Illinois who may be one of the few sane members of the GOP left. During his seat, Kinzinger has been a voice against a new addiction slash drug that has become Trumpism both by publicly criticizing Trump and being one of 10 Republicans in the House to vote for his impeachment. Of course, you say that was a while ago, what makes him interesting now? Well, Kinsinger has stated he isn't running for re-election next year, but what he said during his five-minute announcement is what really made me happy, saying, there's little to no desire to bridge our differences and unity is no longer a word we use. It has also become increasingly obvious that in order to break the narrative, I cannot focus on both a re-election to Congress and a broader fight nationwide. So I don't know what that means for Kinsinger, Based off previous discussion, maybe forward party, but in all seriousness, I'm glad someone is stating the obvious on the state of disarray within their parties. What about your valley for the week? Yeah, so this this hurts me to say, Charles, but my valley of the week has to go out to Jamie Harrison. Um, you know, both of us being from South Carolina, Jamie Harrison has a special place in my heart. Um, but looking at what's happening across the country after election day uh the messaging and fundraising of the democratic party is just not where it needs to be as we head towards 2022 uh we realized that terry didn't have what it took to win a little too late and we didn't do anything until the last two weeks uh we hoped that uh vice president harris that Pre- president biden former president obama would pull out this victory for us by the slimmest of margins and it wasn't enough if we're going to make an effort in 2022, we have to uh, we have to find out what our priorities are and the communication of the party, and most importantly, organization, because the organization of the party is what we are terrible at right now, and that starts with Jamie Harrison. Yeah, I completely agree with you, and to that note, my valley for this week may be a little bit too much, but honestly, the entirety of the Democratic Party might need to take a breather too after this past week. I'm going to keep it simple and straight. This either becomes a fire under the ass of the DNC in preparation for next year, or the attempt to coast will once again lead to another bad pit in our stomach for the upcoming elections. However, that's all we have for this week, but next week we will be back for even more. 
does the BBB finally get text for us and mention to look at? Uh, probably not. Will Democrats continue to lose fights in the ongoing battle? Eh, probably not. No one really knows, but we'll be sure to cover it next time on Capital Seas. Again, I'm Charles Greenlee. And I'm Nathan Crunkleton. We'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by the creative efforts of Charles Greenlee and Nathan Crunkleton. To stay up to date with our upcoming podcast episodes and when they will be updating, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Capital C's Pod. That's capital, like Capitol Hill, C-S-Pod. Thanks for listening, and we will be back with more from the Hill.